Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we'll be discussing the art, music, and gameplay of Final Fantasy III, though not necessarily in that order. This will be the last time I think we'll be able to split these three things into, or I should say not split these three things, keep them all in one episode. I think this is the last time where the music and art in particular are going to allow us to keep them in one conversation. Anyway, on this particular podcast, we'll be discussing uh, the job system a lot, though we did just run through that. This is the first game that features that, and there are some pretty fantastic, and still to this day, let's use our favorite word, indelible pieces of music and art to talk about. But let us begin in the gameplay department, as we so often do. Let's leave the music off to the very end, but let's begin with a couple of things before we get into the way that the job class system works. In particular, I thought we'd talk about the way that the ally system works, where you have a number of different guest characters join your party, which is something we would see in future Final Fantasy games, though in a lot of those, typically you gain control of them. And Ira, that's not the way it works in Final Fantasy III. No, it's it's peculiar, and it, they didn't do it this way again until World of Final Fantasy. Love that game. Would you say World of Final Fantasy is underrated at this, at this point? <laughs> That's a fun conversation we've been having on Twitter about Final Fantasy VII. Overrated, underrated. I should say our friends are over are certainly a great resource for us over at Final Fantasy Union. Those guys do a fantastic job. And I thought they did a really great video recently on the entire history of the series and how things end up either underrated or overrated. But at this point, I would say that, yes, World of Final Fantasy is... A little bit underrated. Cool. So to your actual question, yeah, the the allies, the sub-characters who, who join our four main characters who are either blank slates or more or less blank slates, they, they don't actually join the party under your control. Instead, they will randomly show up and, and cast one of two spells. Each of the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven characters has two spells. So, you know, depending on their particular nature... So, for example, uh, Princess Sarah, who joins you early on, you think you're rescuing her, but no. No. She's got this under control. But she'll cast Cure or Arrow. Sid will attack with his hammer or cast Fire. Desh will attack with his sword or cast Thundara. Arya, the Maiden of Water, will cast Protect or Cura. Prince Alus will cast Confuse or Arrow. Doga will cast Firaga or Flare. And on, uh, how do we say her name? Unai. Is Unai. Though it's Onai in the I, actually this is retranslation, right? No, no, it's Unai. It's just in the strategy guide we happen to be looking at. There's a tie-up. Oh, <laughs> a tie-up indeed. So uh, Unai, I believe, it, indeed, indeed, it is. It's Unai. It just says O under her. <laughs> bio. That's kind of funny. So, yeah, you, you get these guest characters. They come in. They'll do something at the beginning of battle, typically. And it's a, an interesting way to introduce guest characters. You saw it a little bit again, though it doesn't work exactly that way, with Aranaya Highwind in Final Fantasy XV. Where yeah. you never actually gain control of her. She shows up. She helps you in battle for a little while. She'll stick around once you've reached a certain level in Final Fantasy right. XV. Spoilers. But... You never do gain direct control of her, which makes that somewhat similar. Sure. And and to contrast in that game in particular, the little sister. Gladio's little sister joins your party, but again, she doesn't you don't really control her, right? Right, exactly right. So 
An interesting system, one I enjoyed going back and playing through Final Fantasy III for this podcast, just seeing those guys uh, jump forward. It has a very similar feeling to later in the games where you would have Odin very famously, you know, would show up randomly at the beginning right, of battle right, and you right. kind of get excited whenever he does. Same thing if Desh comes out when you're in that particular temple and happens to help you out, you get excited about it. A fun system there. Another system, or it wouldn't even seem at this point like you would describe it as a system, but it was absolutely <laughs> new to the franchise. It, and it feels so intuitive, like it should have always worked this way, but it didn't, is auto-targeting. That's right. No longer is it possible to swing your sword at an empty piece of space because the character right before you has killed that monster. Now, if the monster has died, you will move on and as any person in an actual battle would do, just attack the monster right next to the one you went in to attack in the first place. Thank goodness for <laughs> auto-targeting. Nice little addition to the franchise there for Final Fantasy 3. But of course, the meat of this game really does come in its class system, in its development system, kind of a combination between Final Fantasies 1 and 2, where you still have to level up individual skills a little bit, but that you are assigned to particular skills within each class. And the classes are given to you when you discover different crystals throughout the course of the story. We'll talk a little bit about the difference between that and other job systems later. But of course, we start with one of our favorites, the Onion Knight. Right, but only kind of. But only kind of. What is that about? <laughs> In the original release, the Onion Kids, at least that's how it was translated on my possibly illegally downloaded ROM. Right. <laughs> The Onion Knights were the starting classes. They basically didn't do much, and you uh, you changed to different classes just as quickly as you could. In the remake, the DS remake, which is the strategy guide I've got in front of me to help guide our conversation, you start out with the Freelancers, which is what you would start out with in Final Fantasy V as well. Freelancers have limited options as far as what special commands they've got. They've got, like, first-level magic, and that's it. They can't equip a lot of equipment. There's really no point in keeping them once you get the superpower to change between classes. One of the other things about the job system in Final Fantasy III is there are some jobs that are clearly better than others. In fact, I'm pretty sure they're meant to be. It's not unlike when your characters get their their status quo change halfway through Final Fantasy I. The fighter becomes the knight, the white mage becomes the white wizard, and so on. In Final Fantasy III, the Black Mage is the inferior version of the Magus. The White Mage is the inferior version of the Devout. The, uh, I think it's the Monk is inferior to Black Belt and that sort of thing. So there are some of these classes where once you get the better, higher level, more, more impressive classes, uh, there's no point in using them anymore. And on the one hand, that feels a bit like, you know, what's the point? On the other hand, it does give a sort of a feeling of upgrading. So while there might be 20-some classes, it's almost like a palette swap in a, in a fighting game, you know, where Ryu and Ken are basically the same character. But they, a little bit different. Well, and the, especially later, they would differentiate better and better. But really, there, once you get the Devout, there's no reason to have a White Mage anymore. Once you get the Summoner, there's no point in having an Evoker anymore. Right. And some people would argue, and I think this even goes to the next extent of this conversation, the big balance issue with this game is that by the time you get to the end, you just want sages and ninjas. And I think it's a little more complicated than that. And honestly, 
I think that's a problem that a lot of the people who are really into breaking these games down. I've noticed there's a certain class of Final Fantasy player, and I love these people. I don't want to try to put them down by any means, but people who are very interested in for lack of a better term, breaking the game or figuring the game sure. out at its most fundamental, almost mathematical level. Right. And this game in particular, there's no real reason why if you're going to go full force, 100%, try to make yourself as powerful as possible, why you would fill your team up with anything other than ninjas and sages. Right. And I get that, but I, I also always want to remind those people that 90% of us that play through these games are going to enjoy and even find use of all of or most of the different classes because we're not going to reach that level of mastery over the thing. You'll see this in other games as well, board games, card games, uh, in D&D. In D&D, or, or various tabletop RPGs, we refer to this as min-maxing. It's where you just, instead of trying to play the role of a character, you just try to make the most efficient character at whatever thing. In Magic the Gathering, your tournament grinders are trying to find the absolute best deck given what other decks are being played. And all of that's fine, but it's worth remembering that some of us are playing it with different goals in mind. Uh, Especially when it comes to Magic the Gathering, the competitive scene can get pretty uh, intense Right, And I really enjoy listening to the podcast of Mark Rosewater. It's called Drive to Work. As he is driving to work, he talks about designing, developing Magic the Gathering. And he tries to remind people who contact him complaining about, you know, card X or Y because it's not as good as it should be, that there, there are lots of cards and not every card is for every person and not every game experience is for every person. And to remember that other people want to play in different ways. So... Yeah, I think all that said, even I, once we get to the the end of this game, I'm mostly just using sages and ninjas, maybe a knight, because there's more armor to a knight. Right. But I think that broadly speaking, that's a good lesson to take home from this entire series and something that even I have struggled with at times, you know, with these last two games, for example, two and three don't do as much for me as most of the rest of the games in the series have. So even on this podcast, I've been, you know, kind of saying, eh, we'll get through the plot of two and three and we'll get through the art music gameplay because four, five and six are going to be so great. And I keep looking forward to that stuff. But I see every once in a while on Twitter. In fact, we put this out not that long ago before the recording of this particular one, I was asking people because it was the 30th anniversary of Final Fantasy, what is your favorite moment from the series or what are some of your favorite you know, moments from your real life that you remember while playing the series? And we probably got a good 20, 25 responses. No crossover. No two people <laughs> with the exact same moment. That's really cool. And a couple of people, I was surprised at people who said 13-2 was their favorite iteration in the franchise or 10-2 is their favorite. And a few people that mentioned how much they like two and three. And it always, when I hear that, makes me think I should try harder to see what they see about these games. And as I went back and played this one and found myself loving the soundtrack, which we'll get into in a minute, but let's stick with gameplay for a little while because beyond the balance issues, and I think that showed up again, neither one of us can really speak to it because 
we went through it so quickly this last time through the final dungeon i've seen a lot of people complain that it isn't balanced well and that it takes too much of a grind it's an old game it's based on grinding for leveling up or powering up or whatever i i don't care that much at this time in my life to, <laughs> to, to hold the the final dungeon grind against it but some people care very much about dungeon design and so maybe sure. one of these days we'll have a dungeon design expert come on the podcast sure and because i've heard people praise this game's dungeons to the nth degree just saying Final Fantasy III has some of the best dungeons in the series. It's not something either you or I really focus on that heavily. Not that much. I'm not sure we could do our top five, top ten dungeons, you know. If we strained, (laughs) we could probably come up with some. They'd all be in Final Fantasy VI. VI, I know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's also worth remembering that Final Fantasy III is the first game that had summoners. Though, to be fair, it had evokers and summoners. Evokers come first. You gotta evoke before you can summon. I guess. <laughs> so the evokers of Final Fantasy III cast a random summon. And I don't know about you. Yeah. But when it comes to which monsters I'm summoning, I would like a little more predictability. <laughs> little heads up. Little heads up on which monsters coming into battle. But they are eventually replaced by summoners. Summoners are able to summon specific monsters based upon, you know, your choice. They are, I mean, they're, they're pretty good classes. I would definitely consider them ones to, to take into the final dungeon if you've got your Odins and your Leviathans and whatnot. Summons Since sages can also cast summons, I'm not sure. I do remember when I went through it on that ROM 17 years ago, my, my party was a knight, a ninja, a sage, and a summoner. And that was probably because I didn't want to take two ninjas and two sages. But... I mean, you do need... Ninjas are a little delicate, though my ninja couldn't be touched, so whatever. Yeah. So that's why I had a knight, and I wanted to be able to... You know, I wanted to have a summoner, because I did. So yeah, the first game was summoners and summon monsters. They don't really have anything to do with the plot, though we mentioned that already an episode or three ago. So beyond that, I think we've pretty much just got a pretty cool, but early, somewhat primitive iteration of the job system, and the rewards that come with unlocking new jobs. I think it's a little bit worse may be the wrong word to use. We try to sometimes stay away from better and worse. But for me, it doesn't work as well as the system in Final Fantasy Tactics, for example, where instead of just at the right time in the story, you come upon the crystal and that crystal grants you access to several more jobs. The act of opening up a job is directly related to the work you put in to one character class or the other. The prerequisites, as we talked about on that podcast where we got into this system. So it's a cool one to go back and play, though I do think ultimately it comes down to being a game where later iterations in the series would improve upon the gameplay ideas in pretty much every way. So I did want to say, though, if there's a huge defender of Final Fantasy III over Five and Tactics and 10-2 and its particular iteration of the job system. If there's an observation you've made about it that's just escaped my attention or our attention, absolutely bring it to us. I'd love to hear about it and we can address this again in the future. So I got a question for you. Final Fantasies 2 and 3, I think, are for us perhaps the less impressive right. 
entries in the series. So so we just talked about, you know, you think it's, an, it's a, a worthy thing to go back and play at some point. If I were to give you a copy of Final Fantasy 2 and a f- copy of Final Fantasy 3 and say, Drew, you have to play one of these because that's how this hypothetical works. Sure. Which would you choose? I think it would have to be three. And even though I just said all that stuff about how the job system is more interesting later on, it's still interesting in this game and it adds a great deal of replayability. You can do a lot of different things with it. You don't have to present the challenge of yourself of trying to defeat the final boss with just a bunch of knights, but you can. You can absolutely do that. And for me, where future games are going to sort of outpace this one in terms of quality has a lot to do with their characters and story. And that's where I think Final Fantasy II would have its best opportunity to hold in that argument. And while I like certain parts of the story of two, it's not quite deep enough that multiple playthroughs are going to add a level of depth, I think, to understanding the characters and the motivations or the philosophies behind what's going on. I think, however... And I almost never side, this is interesting, I almost never come down on the side of gameplay over character, theme, and story. But in this particular instance, I would have to. I would get more out of playing Final Fantasy III. If that was the only one I was allowed to play for the rest of my life, two or three, had to pick one of those two, I'd go with three. Interesting. I think I'd go with two. (laughs) Of course you would. Not just to contradict my little brother. Right. But from that same point of view, I have better memories of the job class system from other games. And the powering up system, the I can't even remember what it was called anymore. That other system that Final Fantasy II employs is so different, and you can do so many different things with it. I might be more tempted to play Final Fantasy II over and over again to see what other different kinds of things I could do. Maybe I could have three of my characters use only two shields and one character be a master mage behind them. So they take all the hate. They become the tanks, right? And they take all the hate and they take all the damage and my mage just blasts them. I totally get that. I think you would be well served either way. And I think it speaks pretty well to the quality of this franchise. The two games that... We're maybe the weakest on, if we want to put it that way, maybe reflect it back on ourselves and say we're the weakest on these two games. There's still so much good in both of them. And I see that in people responding to us on Twitter, on Facebook, the way people love these games. They really are well-loved. And I think a lot of that has to do with, and I think it's a good time to move into the next part of our conversation here, but some of the artwork in it. Now, there are two different versions of this game. We talked about it when we went through the plot themes and characters. This is a little bit disjointed. There's the original version that came out in Japan, and then there's this long gap between that and the version that came out in the United States, which was very, very different. Had 3D models. Not only did it have... 3D models, so the art we're talking about is completely different, but the main characters were all named people now, instead of just faceless onion knights. There is now Luneth, Ingus, Ark, and Refia, who were not in the original game. So, and I think a lot of the memories of the art of this game are based on that 3D version, that 3DS version that came out many years later. 
and a lot of the job systems. So it's not necessarily based on Yoshitaka Amano, but starting there with some of those job classes, are there any in particular? Because we've talked about the first game had Black Mage, sure. White Mage, yeah. Fighter and all of that. But in Final Fantasy III, I think there are a couple of fun new entries into that category. I'll, I'll start off with one that I liked, as we talked about earlier, the summons, but all of the summoners have horns. And right. this is something that, they're, they're headbands with horns, but summoners having horns is an artistic decision right. that was made in this game that we would see in the rest of the franchise. I was actually confused by that at first because my first summoner was Rydia. Sure. And she doesn't have a horn. No horn. No horn. No horn. But the uh, the summoner class, uh, the evoker and summoner in Final Fantasy III have horns. In nine, it would be a naturally occurring phenomena. The horn would grow straight from their head. Uh, and then in other various summoner in tactics, they've got a, they wear a horn and so on. I'm not sure why. Me neither. We'll look that up and have that answer <laughs> in a future podcast. We'll learn more about why summoners have horns. But... For the artistic conversation, for the points of this particular conversation, an interesting aesthetic design. Of course, the Onion Knight is one of our all-time favorites, survives to this day in Dissidia. They've got a fun Baroque helmet. They've got an interesting design in and to themselves. If you've seen the Onion Knight, you will remember it forever and ever. It's difficult to describe. That's one of the difficulties of doing a podcast where you talk about visual things and you're, it's just an audio format well i think i think the way that we could describe it would be that the helmet is vaguely onion shaped it's got in order to fit overhead it's got to be kind of roundish right but it definitely is fatter on the bottom skinnier on the top and then it's got a kind of plume off the top of its head which gives it vaguely the shape of an onion well there you go what about the uh the aesthetics of the geomancer they're basically blue santa <laughs> And, and I've always really liked Geomancers just because I think it's an interesting ability to have your magic or your abilities be determined by your surroundings. It does make it so that if you're in a fire cave and you're fighting fire demons, that you're casting fire at, at fire yeah, you, creatures. You're fighting fire with fire, are you? Which in Final Fantasy tends not to work very well because, as we have discussed in previous podcasts, there's an elemental rock, paper, scissors kind of aspect to things. So you want to cast water or ice on your fire, guys. But but to the point here, yeah, the artistic design of the Geomancers has always felt really goofy to me. At, at least in, in the first couple iterations. Later on when they took on a more, I don't know, they, they look different in tactics. Yeah, they look cooler. It's the word, the word you're looking for. Cooler. They look cooler <laughs> in tactics. The, uh, yeah, it's a more grounded, more realistic design. I think something that you might expect to see if you were going to make a live action adaptation in a Game of Thrones style, a Lord of the Rings style film on Final Fantasy stuff, you're going to have a Geomancer. You're going to take the design from Tactics, not the one from Final Fantasy 3. Well, it, it's worth noting that this particular trope of goofy costumes being not chosen has shown up in various comic book movies and shows and whatnot. Probably most famously in 2000's X-Men when right? Scott and Wolverine joke back and forth about wearing yellow spandex. Right, right. right. So, so I could see a world where the blue Santa toned down a bit, you know, wearing the pleather of the CW DC shows. As an homage. Yeah, just a little bit. A wink and a nod. Yeah, 
I mean, they got Captain Cold wearing a freaking hoodie. I know, a, I know. He's, he's brilliant. <laughs> yes. That's at least partially because Wentworth Miller is... Right. Yeah. It works, though. So, yeah, you could do it with this Final Fantasy stuff. And there's a lot of the maybe more silly and ridiculous that I overlook sometimes that would work in an adaptation. And beyond all the job looks, those that I think would become... Honestly, more well-known in future iterations, as we discussed, what we've got here are four main characters all of a sudden. Actual, not faceless, but faceful. Faceful characters is what they are. I love a good faceful character. (laughs) So let's talk about the designs, the look and feel of our main cast, starting with Luneth. The first of four orphans, silver-haired, we would see that in Final Fantasy again, but a good guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's got a turtleneck. It's always a good look. As well you do. Three belts across his chest. <laughs> a vest, I think, was not going to be good enough. So if you thought that uh, it was Tetsuya Nomura who invented the belt phenomenon, it was not indeed. Other than that, just sort of a fresh-faced looking hero type. Ark, tell me about Ark. Ark is interesting. I think there's a little bit more in his design. He looks a little more tattered. He looks like he's got his clothes from kind of whatever was lying around. Got a nice little scarf there, but other than that, just a solid green robe. He's uh, pictured typically very modest. He's portrayed as a modest character. They're all orphans, but he is the one who I think most carries the typical symbol of what you think of when you think orphan. Right. He's he's getting picked on much more conservative attire. And he carries instead of a weapon as the other ones do a book. What is it with you people in your books? What is it? You believe knowledge is power or some nonsense? And then I think both Raffia and Ingus have what you would call more regal attire. They appear to be dressed in official regalia of the empire, of sure. the kingdom that they are from. They both speak with a bit more class and a bit more education than do Luneth and Ark. And uh, in particular, Ingus, he has that uh, you know, style of speaking that later on Gao would make fun of Cyan for using in Final Fantasy VI. <laughs> Just a little bit stuffy is Ingus, but his red and white soldier's uniform, I think, is a really clean and clear look. And Refia's blue and white is a nice contrast to that. And I think their character designs in particular serve as nice contrasts for their characters as they would work throughout the game, where Ingus tends to be a bit more reserved and a bit more resigned to tradition and duty, as knights of the realm tend to be, as those who are sworn to the laws of the land can be. Whereas Refia, as a rebellious young woman who lives in a patriarchal society who has been told for most of her life you have to be this or that who suddenly finds out no i'm a warrior of the light you don't get to tell me what to do the light that's right (laughs) so i think that their character designs work really well where we've talked about this before on the podcast the yin and yang not necessarily good versus evil but aggressive versus passive right and they actually flip them he wears red but he's the more passive character she wears blue and she is the more aggressive at least toward going on the adventure and i think that's a pretty cool dynamic One of the things I really like about the character designs for the DS version is that while each of these four characters has their own look, 
once they get into the jobs, they they take their various jobs look. So the white mage still looks like a white mage, but they manage to carry over certain details. So Lunes, white mage, doesn't look like Arcs, doesn't look like Refios, doesn't look like Ignis's. Right. Ingus or Ingus. whatever. Ignis is a different guy. <laughs> so the uh, the three belt vest that Luneth is wearing carries over to the white mage. That yellow scarf and X belt buckle from Ark carries over to the white mage. That little uh, sort of cross pendant that Refia wears carries over to the white mage. The little uh, green pendant that Ingus Ingus wears carries over to the white mage. And not every not those details don't carry over every time. There aren't always details like that that carry over, but each one has their own version of it. And I think that's a really cool way to have these new characters taking on old classes and making it their own. I think so, too. And I think it's my favorite aspect of something about this that I absolutely struggle with. And we've talked about it over and over again, but maybe is it no more pronounced anywhere else in the game than in its artwork which is the differences between the iterations. I absolutely adore the 2D artwork from this game for the most part. I like what you just said about the 3D stuff where all the different characters, they actually look a little bit different. They have their own thing that still signifies it's them underneath that job class. But all told, the 3D artwork in this game just does not work for me quite as well. I don't find it as endearing. I think part of it is that it came out in a difficult time of the life of the 3DS or of 3D gaming in general. If it was going to be re-released today, it would probably just be a PSN port right. and they would clean it up. But And I think they ought to do that. I do too. And I'd love to go back and play it again. But the 3D stuff for me takes out a lot of the charm that the 2D had, which is difficult for me to say because I'm far more familiar with the 3D version than I am the 2D. Right. And I tend not to be one who harps on graphics. I'll still go back and play Final Fantasy VII, even though Cloud's hands are basically just flesh-colored blocks. Yeah. But at the same time, this was... Hmm... I'm not sure why. I think it might be because it is from that earlier era. I feel like it ought to go ahead and just use the 2D graphics. Uh, I feel the same way about the Final Fantasy IV DS. Remake. Me too. Me I too. would prefer to just play the uh, the 2D version, and I do. So I agree. The I think it was a valiant attempt. I'm glad they tried it, but I would really like to see a 2D version with sprites of the... of the caliber of Final Fantasy VI, and just play this game again, balance issues and all. I totally agree. And there are only really a handful of pieces of art that stuck out to me in this one that have stood the test of time from Yoshitaka Amano. The one that I can think of is from behind our main characters. Again, this is before they were named main characters looking out over the edge of a cliff. There are a couple of the Cloud of Darkness and, of course, any one of the logos is awesome. So you got to give it up for Yoshitaka Amano in those particular departments. But other than that, unfortunately, because of how disjointed it is, because of the different versions, and because we really can't speak to the 3DS versus the 
early 90s 2D version that never officially came out in the United States versions of this game. I think we're just going to have to end our conversation on the artwork there and move into a surprisingly good, maybe not surprising, maybe because it's Nobuo Uematsu, we should never be surprised that it's a good soundtrack. I think we ought not be surprised by Nobuo Uematsu. I was thinking about this the other day and... I was having this back and forth with a number of people about his soundtracks. I said, you can argue for any one of them at any particular point in time being the best, but has there ever been a mediocre Final Fantasy soundtrack? If we're talking about Nobuo Uematsu Final Fantasy soundtracks, probably not. I wonder if maybe some of the spinoff games... I think Final Fantasy Mystic Quest has a brilliant soundtrack. Tactics is great. Crystal Chronicles is great. But maybe Chocobo Dungeons a little... Who knows? I don't know. I've never played it. <laughs> I, I started to play Chocobo Dungeon once. Yeah. I, didn't, yeah. I didn't take it. I know there are people who do. I know there are people who love those games. But ultimately, overall, Nobuo Uematsu's involved. Your soundtrack is going to be pretty damn fantastic. And that's the same with Final Fantasy III. 44 pieces we're up to. This was his last game on the Nintendo Entertainment System. I think he had mastered it. You would see this a couple of times. He would come to master the technology, something musicians have to deal with more than I think a lot of people realize. Like the first guy to discover feedback. You know, Jimi Hendrix is oftentimes attributed for that, but when you go back and realize the limitations of your technology and start playing with them. I think that's what we saw here in this third soundtrack from Nobuo Uematsu, because man, did he outdo himself. We're going to start with the piece I think you have to, which is his overworld theme for Final Fantasy III, which is also called Eternal Wind. The reason we're starting here is because it sets the tone for this game as a completely different melodic experience than what we got from Final Fantasies one and two. It is a mix of adventure and mystery, where the first two I think were much more, the first game is an adventure I think in a light tone, Sure. The second game, Adventure, and more of a dark tone. Still Adventure, uh, though. Yeah, and, and a little more... You've pointed out that a lot of those songs have a march beat to them. Right. I think this, the second game has a lot more of those because it's much more about the military is coming. Right. Know, the, the Empire is coming. So our threat in Final Fantasy III is a lot more ambiguous, sure. a lot more mysterious. Yes. And so the soundtrack has to reflect that. And it does so beautifully. The overworld theme is essentially a mix of classic Nobuo Uematsu melody. It's going to be the theme you hear over the top, that line you hear that comes across over the top of all of this chaos that exists in the counter melody that can also kind of be seen as a bass line. The bass line and the counter melody will dance off of each other, but there's an intense percussive feel to that counter melody, which requires a certain amount of movement. It's almost overwhelming to your senses when you listen to this piece of music. It's not supposed to put you in a confident state like the first two games are, where the first one you're setting out on an adventure, the second one you're fighting back against a thing, the third one you're walking out into a world of discovery. It is built on a different philosophy that we're going to talk about after we listen to it. So here is a little piece of Eternal Wind. Mm-hmm. 
Alright, so if you're thinking to yourself, this sounds different than a lot of the other pieces we've heard on this podcast so far, what we've heard from Nobu Uematsu so far, and he's done dark music, he's done a little bit of mystery, but why is this different? Well, at its most basic fundamental level, most of Western music, again, I'm speaking very broadly here, is built on a concept called tension and release, which is where you will build a piece of music to a point of climactic tension, and then you will have it resolve itself in a way that feels very comfortable. The most common chord progression in music. I know this because I play it on the guitar all the time. You start with a nice G major. Oh yeah, everyone likes a good G. D major. Everyone loves a good D major, okay. Then in our fourth chord progression, our third chord, E minor which sounds out of place because it was just around that made those two major chords. And then we resolve on a C major, which allows us to get back into where we were. And that kind of tension in release is what rock and roll and blues and jazz are built around. You put that little bit of dissonance in there that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and then you resolve it. If you have never heard of the Axis of Awesome, you owe it to yourself to look them up on YouTube and listen to the four chords song. They talk about this particular phenomena and then they play it and then they play many, 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 many pop songs over those four chords. And they show you just how in their lighthearted and humorous way, all these different pop songs are built on that same concept of those four chords. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've written songs using those four chords. Anyone who's ever written a song has. The point is to say that's one type of way of making music. And when you combine that type of making music with another type, which is in Japanese music, again, broadly speaking, there isn't that much tension to get to release. You tend to stay inside of a far more comfortable zone. So in the first couple of Final Fantasy games, most of Uematsu's music would work in tandem, would always be agreeing with each other, with itself. But in this, there's a bit more disagreement. There's more tension. There's more fighting amongst the notes themselves. You will see sustained accidentals. Accidentals are notes that don't naturally occur inside of the key that you're in that will oftentimes make it sound eerie or strange. It's unsettling. What is that note doing here? And then it will resolve itself and it feels right. One of the best instruments to do this on, something Uematsu would use again and again that plays a pivotal role in this game, is the oboe. You know what an oboe sounds like. Yeah, it's a double-reeded one. It's a double-reeded instrument. It works in an interesting way because it's pretty much in between a clarinet, a flute, and a saxophone. It exists in its own weird space. And unlike those instruments, it doesn't sound great if you play a bunch of them together. Sure. You kind of just need one oboe at a time, which makes it (laughs) naturally a solitary and lonely instrument. Okay. You will see the oboe used over and over again, and especially on this soundtrack by Uematsu, as a symbol of isolation as loneliness, as one, either one person or one small group against the world or against a much larger foe. Like those uh, 
on the surface world, as we already talked about in last episode, there's these like two or three islands in a sea of, of chaos and storms. Uh, so I think that's another good example of here's just these little bits of thing that are, that are solitary, that are isolated, as you said, from the world at large. Speaking of little bits of thing that are isolated, one of the major pieces of musical theory that a lot of people who've never really gotten into trying to create or study music don't necessarily understand is the importance of silence. This is something they will tell you when you're first getting into writing your own pieces of music that you don't have to fill every second up with a note or whatever it is with instrumentation that sometimes points of silence can be just as powerful as a point of the exact right note or chord. And I think nowhere is this better seen than in Uematsu's piece that serves for the first several towns as we talked about where there are ghosts and pirates and there's swashbuckling and mystery <laughs> with Jin the Fire. concept of silence in music, Hayao Miyazaki, uh, who directed most of the Studio Ghibli films like Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke, we've talked about him before. If you're a fan of Final Fantasy, it's almost certain that you are familiar with his films. He is well known for incorporating this concept into his movies. There, he did an interview several years ago now where he talked about the concept of Ma, that is intentional silence, that if it's always intense all the time, then your music means less, your story means less. It, there's, there's less opportunity to reflect upon what has come and what will come. Right. And so we see that a lot in blues and jazz in particular in Western music. And that track we just listened to, very driven by those types of theories. And when we see Uematsu play more and more in that sandbox as he would move forward. But of course, no Uematsu soundtrack is complete without a great piece of battle music. This is a good one. It's a really good one. And I know we could probably say that for every single game, but let's just take a listen in to one of the best, I don't care, throughout the entire franchise, one of the best pieces of battle music that this auteur of battle music would come up with. Awesome. 
It's battle music from Nobu Uematsu. It doesn't get any better than that, except for all the times later when it would get, of course, better than that. It would get, it would certainly progress to higher and higher bars. After everything that goes on in this game, you get one last piece of atmospheric music. I talk about different categories of Uematsu music, him setting the tone into town, the battle, character themes, this in particular, I think, is a great version of just an atmospheric tone he would set for the final third, really the final act of this game. And what I think is interesting about the track that is titled Let Me Know the Truth is that this is a piece that, like we were talking about earlier with tension and release, it doesn't resolve. It makes you feel uneasy throughout its entirety, and yet it's still an inviting piece of music, which is a very, very difficult balance to strike. But once you've gotten to this place in the game and we're in how many different worlds and sure. there's a cloud of darkness and yep. nothing that we thought existed, time has been stopped, but now we have to start it again. Once you've reached that place in Final Fantasy where up is down and black is white and you don't know what's what. This was, I think, one of Uematsu's first really successful attempts at putting you in that place where you should feel that kind of unsettling uncertainty. Let us wrap up where we absolutely have to on a piece of music that cannot be undiscussed in this particular idiom. This is a work of genius. This is a piece, I believe, the first piece of Uematsu genius, not related to the series overall. You've got the prelude, uh -huh. you've got the Final Fantasy theme, uh -huh. you got chocobos and battle fanfares, victory fanfares, the base theme, but, but for a piece of music that does not exist in any of the other games that is unique to Final Fantasy III, Elia or Aria, right. depending on when we're translating this, Maiden of Water yes. is a piece of aesthetic genius. It is still taught in schools in Japan to school children. Excellent. It has a hook. The trill in its hook in its first little piece. And again, it works on that off-center, unsettling. It's got a an accidental right there in its main hook. 
It's built on tension and release. But it is indelible. <laughs> I can't <laughs> I can't not use it. It screams everything that Final Fantasy is about. Familiar yet different. Eastern and Western. Life and death. And Arya as a as a character as we've talked about is someone who's immediately someone you want to be attached to and then goes away very quickly yeah same with this piece of music only exists in the game for a short period of time i went to a concert just a few months ago guy played it on an acoustic guitar in front of a captivated silent crowd one acoustic guitar in front of a thousand people because this piece of music is brilliant this music conversation and get into the bigger art conversation we've got to talk about this piece that for me Ira begins a kind of category of Uematsu music to try to categorize this is ridiculous but essentially random dungeon or overworld or just place music that is stunningly beautiful, like almost more beautiful than it has any business being. If that makes any sense? Yeah, I, I think it does. Uh, Uematsu has a, a knack for evoking an atmosphere. Uh, when you think about, uh, you know, our heroes marching across the plains or, or flying on an airship or, or rowing through a river or, or whatever, uh, Joe Hisashi does this also in, in Studio Ghibli films, right? Ev evoking an atmosphere. I, th I think they both do it quite well. Yeah, and, you know, I, I do think in these first three games, there's a little bit more of what you might call filler music or music that just existed to serve its purpose, to be there in the background. It was kind of accepted and, and standard in games that that was the case. And then you would have like better music, more in-depth, more engaging music for these big moments. Even in this series, you know, the Rebel Army theme that really sticks out, but that's tied to all these big moments. There's not quite as much when you're just shopping, say, for example, or whatever random. And, sure. and, and that, would, that had long been the case, but this music that has been playing behind us, originally just called Waterworld, then later in the 3D version called The Boundless Ocean is just gorgeous. It reminds me a lot of the dungeon music from Final Fantasy VIII, Find Your Way, where if you played this for someone, they might go, oh, is this 
music that accompanies a big tragic moment, or maybe this is the music for the young prince or princess of the story, or, you know, the, the looking out over a boundless ocean, but in a big moment, and not just cruising around the boundless ocean. And, and that's what it's for, but you're right, it, it, it takes what could be an otherwise mundane or, or even boring moment and, and makes it an emotional one, an impactful one. And that's something that I think probably with tracks like this, he would realize moving forward, there's no reason not to make every moment of every game feel special. And, and he has a special role to play in making that happen. And he would go on to do it. And yeah, it's just a remarkably beautiful piece of music. So that kind of reminds me of the Nintendo Wii and the, I guess it's the Mi Channel music. Uh, it's a real simple piece, or, or I mean, it sounds simple to me. I'm no music theory major, but it, it, you know, it's kind of low key, but it's it's uh, really beautiful in its own way. And I, you know, I don't know that the composers of the Wii Mi Channel, I guess, whatever that that real gentle kind of, you're just kind of hanging out music. I don't know that they were inspired by Uematsu specifically, uh, you know, like you were just saying, taking the work seriously even for the filler moments. But I like that game composers are often willing to do the hard work even for the uh, the filler moments. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And in fact, this piece is stood the test of time and it's well recognized. It was on one of the first specialty albums to come out of Final Fantasy music, one we owned on CD in the 90s. We talked about it in Final Fantasy 2. It's the Prey Vocal Collections, and they redubbed this for the third time. Actually, I guess it would have been the second time before the third time. Uh, get your timeline straight there. Uh, Voyage, and it's sung in Japanese, and there's you know, vocals now and, and lyrics that weren't there before. And again, just absolutely gorgeous. It's one of my favorites from that album. And I don't think there's a bad, I don't think there's a bad track on that album. I need to go back and re-listen to it all the way through. Someday we'll do, if not the top five or top 10 definitive, because that would be impossible. Certainly our recommendations, along with Celtic Moon, Final Fantasy Prey, is one of my all-time favorite collections of music from the series. And this just, random ocean music from Final Fantasy 3. It's so good. It's just really, really nice. It's just nice. It's just I 
stand on the completely tonal opposite end of the spectrum from It's Just Nice, Ira. We, we already talked about the main battle music, but while we're talking specialty albums, we either have and or definitely will talk about the Black Mages. We have to. The heavier rock band that actually features Nobuo Uematsu on the organ and some just stupendous guitar players. Not to, I mean, the bassist is phenomenal. The drummer's incredible, too. The Black Mages are fantastic. And one of my personal favorite iterations, because uh, they do these reinterpretations of mostly Final Fantasy battle music, not all of its battle music. They do one of the final fight in Final Fantasy III, which to me is an all right. It's, it's pretty good. Uh, I really like the intro to it. It's weird. I'll maybe sneak some of that in behind us here while I'm making the point. But it's I think it's pretty good. But I think the bass battle music in Final Fantasy III just rocks as hell like we talked about earlier. And it's one of my favorite Black Mages versions. Uh, it begins the second album retitled The Rocking Grounds. So depending on where you are right now and your sound setup and what you want the following experience to be, I highly recommend you either turn up or down your volume because it's literally about to rock. original score for Final Fantasy 3. Really one of the best of its time. It's just amazing and, and really just a testament to Nobuo Uematsu and the other composers, uh, but certainly him over these next several years and the heights he would reach that when it's, you know, ultimately all looked at together with what would come next, not a top five Final Fantasy soundtrack, but what's perhaps even more amazing than that is that despite that, there are still five or six of these pieces that we've highlighted here that remain to this day among the best for Uematsu and the franchise. And that is just a testament to the almost unfathomably deep well of quality music that this man and this series have produced. So we've got our five questions that we're trying to ask about these games as a piece of art 
we are looking at the cultural commentary, the impact on the industry, the craft, the cultural impact, and flaws. So let's talk about social commentary first. Does this game have anything to say about society, how we live our lives? Is, is it trying to help us understand ourselves better? I think so. I think it's got some pretty profound things to say, despite their simplicity. I think its message of life is precious precisely because it ends is right. profound. I think its sense of mystery and its allegory to the allegory of the cave, which is you don't know all the world you think you know. There's right. always some information out there that is going to be new to you. I think it actually succeeds in its cultural and societal commentary better than I originally thought when I was first thinking back on this. I had to right. go back and play it again to remember right. it's pretty good in this regard. I agree. I, I think especially the, the notion that life is worth living and that fighting against the inevitable death is is a poor way to live. It's, it's rather more important to to enjoy life while it's here. Uh, and you see that in, in bad guys over and over again in pop culture, Voldemort being a fantastic example, which I'm pretty sure we mentioned. I think episode. so. So I agree. I think if the point of a lot of this story is that sense of adventure, that sense of exploration, that is for these characters, what they find interest in in this life is going on that adventure, you know, going exploring, and they certainly live it to its fullest while the bad guy is all about trying to stay static and never aging and never changing and ultimately never living. Yeah, and I think that's all great. That being said, I think even you just pointed out a couple of examples, there are other pieces of art that have tackled this particular dilemma or these questions in more in-depth ways, I think. Sure. It does a pretty good job, but at its heart are very interesting questions, and I think it works well in the tradition of Final Fantasy in talking about the importance of living your life and embracing your friends and your family and having those be the reason for your life as opposed to, as you pointed out, the fear of death. I think where this game starts to fall down a little bit is where we get into our next couple of categories, which is impact on the industry not so much it, yeah. it really didn't have a wide sweeping impact on the way rpgs or jrpgs are made other than the job system the job system and it's hard to totally discount that well there are plenty of games that while they don't have the same sorts of jobs as final fantasy 3 or even dungeons and dragons they still have here's your character who can take damage here's your character who can deal damage even something like Call of Duty has right has yeah different types of characters where you know, or or you're, maybe the weapon is your character right so if you got a sniper rifle right. yeah. you're playing a different game than if you've got your gravity hammer which I'm pretty sure is Halo not Call of Duty you can have a sniper rifle in Halo too so we're good okay but yeah absolutely true so. That being said, I think in that way, the job system in Final Fantasy III was more an advancement of what we had already seen in D&D. Sure. A good entry into that category, but not as revolutionary as what we would see in Tactics. 
or five. The five is probably even more, and we'll get to that when we when we get to that. As a as a package, I would say five is is probably the superior piece of art. But I do think I I think we can't discount the job system. It is it certainly had a huge impact on Final Fantasy going forward. Whether or not it had an impact on the industry, uh, tough to say. Right, and I, I think similar to two. That's, we talked about it being an impact on the series itself. And so for that reason, if you've enjoyed the games that have come after 2 and 3, right. then you've got to give these guys a lot of credit for this particular work. In terms of its overall craft as a piece of art, again, I feel like there are some things... We talked about the pieces of music. Aria Maiden of Water is... Outstanding. A, a masterpiece. Awesome. The rest of the music is mostly very good. The art is okay, depending on the yeah. version well, you like. Even though uh, Yoshitaka Amano was the head designer, a lot of it you see less in his art and more in the pixels. Right. And that was another thing that's always going to be the case with the crafted as art section of these first couple of games is limited by the technology that they were on and the stories in particular because right you can only tell so much of a story there and this is one that i'd love to see add to it there's 10 to 20 percent of a really good story i think in final fantasy 3 and if someone adapted it to a netflix series or an hbo film or series of films i think you could delve into the ideas and find some great stuff that could really be crafted as art have a cultural and societal commentary that goes to that next level but as is as it was released either on the nintendo or on the 3ds yeah maybe not so much cultural impact it also has a, a difficulty here and this is part of that not being released properly but it didn't do as well in terms of you know you don't see people going around dressed as luneth and ark because they didn't exist until you know 2006 when the game was re-released you will sometimes see though the white mage with the with the cat ears sure or, or the black mage with the sort of crescent moon on his hat there are some of those design elements that you will see people cosplay as or if uh, or, or used in their fan art that's so some of those details do show up but other than aria maiden of water being taught to school children eh. it hasn't stood the test of time as well i should go back and note that at the time it reviewed very well oneup.com gave it a b plus famitsu with a 36 a 34 and a 33 out of 40 those are perfectly well that last one when the 33 was for the ps P, but for the original version, a 36 out of 40, a 4 out of 5 from GamePro, an 8 out of 10 from GameSpy, that, those are not bad scores. Are those DS scores? I think some of them okay. are. Certainly, I well, think the GameSpy and Game Trailers right. ones that but are there. Famitsu giving it a 36 out of 40. Why out of 40? I don't know why they do it out of 40, but they do. So the 36 out of 40 was for the Famicom, the, the, right. that version of the Nintendo. So... Certainly, it, it did review well. Right. Uh, but yeah, when you're going to Comic-Con and you see people dressed up in, as Final Fantasy characters, right? not a lot from Final Fantasy 3. So its cultural impact, I think, overall hasn't been as widespread as the others. And some of that's not its own fault, but that's just... Right. 
kind of how that cookie crumbles. And we've talked a lot, I think, about the flaws that the game has I think we already. Have. I think yeah. we've covered those. Some of the balance issues, maybe the final dungeon. Not. I think even it's fair to say the flaws that there's no one complete definitive version of Final Fantasy sure. 3. Here's the one you play, you know? Right. And that, as we have mentioned before, I'm okay with different versions and, and adding things and, and maybe seeing things from a different point of view. But this, I, I feel like they didn't go all in on right. creating four new characters. I mean, they're there. They have the things that happen are important to them. They are important to the plot of that game, but not as much as Doga and Unai. Right. And I feel like the, if I was going to remake this game with those four characters, uh, I would be pushing a little more to giving them more to do, giving them more development. So even the DS version, I think, has has flaws in that regard. I agree. And I think ultimately this game is a stepping stone. And as somebody who's tried to create things, and uh-huh. so have you, I can totally appreciate that, that sometimes you're going to create something that isn't going to be your best work, but it's going to lead you to some yeah. of your best work. And probably during the creation, my guess is the people creating it thought it was the next best thing that they had done. It was it was this in a big innovative system with 20 some classes we're going to tell this story of adventure and living your life to its fullest and all that sounds great and again at the time 36 out of 40 but looking back it just does not feel as grand as final fantasy 1 or as we'll talk about a few episodes from now final fantasy 4 and that's the thing i think it is stuck as we talked about with 2 sharing its name with 4 3 uh-huh. shares its name. I was just having this conversation with somebody on Twitter the other day. They were asking me to clear up this whole numbers mess, which are the ones that were released in the United States and Japan. Three, sharing its name with the original Super Nintendo version of maybe the greatest game of all time. (laughs) Final Fantasy VI. Yeah. That's tough. That is tough. And I don't know how much of my own analysis of this is stuck behind that. So I'd love for someone to write to us. Sure, let us know. passionate defense of two or three. But no, I, I wouldn't even call it a defense. I'd no. say write, write a passionate offense. <laughs> exactly right. About why we're wrong and this is the, the best Final Fantasy game of all time. I would love to read that essay. I would too. I, I love that stuff. And the people who were telling us 13-2 is their favorite, I'm very... 13-2. Yeah, I'm very curious about stuff like that. So please let us know. But overall, man, I think the legacy of Final Fantasy 3 is an absolutely necessary game in the history of the franchise and probably of the genre of all the people involved uematsu we talked about the steps he took as a creator i think they're symbolic of everybody else of the people who were involved in making these games saying rules here there are no rules here there are no rules here and they really tested that in Final Fantasy III, which meant a few more flaws, because sure. maybe there should be some rules. <laughs> but a worthwhile piece of art, of your time, of your of your desire to entertain yourself. And, and of giving some thought to what it's trying to say.
that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by following us on Twitter or Facebook, and Facebook, at FFWeeklyPod. You can also email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Find us on Patreon.com slash FFWeekly for more episodes and content, and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time when we define cynicism, lionize analysis, and make the case nuance.